I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Matt Bocci was nine years old when his father perished in the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. What followed for Matt was a life filled with psychological and emotional torment. Matt got involved with alcohol and drugs after an uncle through marriage took advantage of his vulnerability and sexually abused him. Now, as we mark the 19th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, Matt is more than five years sober and the author of a new memoir titled Sway. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So the book is Sway, and of course, the word sway has meaning. It does. It has, two, it has a dual meaning. And uh, the first meaning comes from my brother Nick and I going to uh, the World Trade Center for my dad's Christmas party and looking down and my, my father ushering us to, to look to the windows and, and look down. And we could sli- slightly see the building swaying in the wind. And, uh, and the second meaning is a, is a metaphor for my life and, and what transpired after my father's death. Your dad worked for Cantor Fitzgerald on the 105th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center, right? Yes. How old were you on 9-11-2001? Nine years old. Walk us through that day for you. So I went to school, normal day. Uh, I just remember it being a beautiful fall day and um, just a crisp, crispiness in the air. You know, it was just a very fall day and beautiful and so um they they uh came into my classroom at around 9 a.m my superintendent of our schools and went over to my teacher and whispered something to my teacher and then my teacher grabbed picked me and another student and said you know for us to go in the hall so initially i thought i was you know in trouble I, i didn't know what i did or what i was in trouble for but when we got to the hall it was myself this other classmate and then my brother, Nick, and, his, and the other classmate's younger brother, um, they were in the same class as well. So um, there was four of us and, and our teachers, two of our teachers were there and both told us, look, um, I, uh, a plane hit your dad's building. They are safe. Um, They're going to evacuate. And, um, and, and that's all we really know. And so they brought us to a computer room. We, you know, we played computer games for a while and then Slowly but surely, you know, every single kid in my school was seemingly pulled out, especially in my classrooms. All the parents are coming to get their kids. My mother kept my brother and I in school. And um, I remember just going home that day and being on the bus and it just being empty, you know, and we were just pretty much the only kids on the bus. And so we got home and walked up our hill to our house and just seeing all the cars pulled into the driveway in, in a chaotic manner. And we got inside and, and it was just, even more chaotic, you know, everyone was on the phones, people were watching the TV, watching the, the footage, huddled around. And, um, and then quickly my grandmother, you know, grabbed my brother and I and said, you know, for us to go play with our neighbor. So we didn't have to see the stuff that was going on. And at that point it was too late. You know, I already saw some of the television footage um, where he had seen the reactions of people and their moods and, and just the way they were acting in general, just, it just didn't seem like normal. Um, and, and that, that was pretty much what I remember from that day. You were nine years old. How old was Nick? Seven. You say in the book that it was hard for you to believe what happened even after you had seen the news footage. As a kid, you don't really process, right? You know, you don't process what you're seeing. And so when I viewed the footage, I sort of thought to myself, maybe there was some miracle, right? Maybe he got out. You know, maybe he wasn't even in. Maybe he was grabbing a coffee or something. Like, I just figured... Maybe there was just some 
possibility. Um, and you know, you see the, the collapse and, and then it's, it's like, you would think that it would start to set in a little bit more, but, but it really didn't, you know, you still try to like play out all these imaginative like ideas and, and think, well, maybe like, you know, they were able to move all this rubble and, and get, find a staircase. You know, there was just, my father had lost all this weight right before he died and was in great shape. And so I just pictured him being like strong and like moving his way around and, and getting out of there. And, and so it just seemed like uh, it was just such a hard thing to process as a, as a nine-year-old kid, you know? You envisioned him finding his way home in a very, very detailed way. You saw it. You imagined it. Yeah, I imagine even if he didn't get out of the building, I imagined him pulling his way out of the rubble and, you know, finding a way to get out of the rubble and and trudging home and getting to his car and, you know, his clothes would be all battered and, you know, dust everywhere and stuff. And I just, I, I, I pictured it, you know, and I pictured it and thinking that this nightmare would be over soon. You say in the book that to you, your father looked like a young Arnold Schwarzenegger, the early version in movies like Commando, in which Arnold played a retired Delta Force operator. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What kind of man was your dad? He was a family man at heart, you know, and he, he loved family, friends. He loved good times. He, wa- he wanted to spend, you know, have, make memories. Um, and most importantly, though, you know, my father, you know, he really didn't come from much and he worked really hard. He was determined and um, he was determined to make a name for himself and determined to be successful. And, and he accomplished that. Um, but he was very humble at the same time. You know, he was not braggy or showboaty or anything like that. And, um, and he really instilled important values in my brothers and I, you know, just to be good people, to, to have manners and respect and respect your elders um, and just appreciate one another. Actually, we were, uh, my mother and I were looking at family videos last night and uh, we, you know, converted them to DVDs. And so just seeing um, the birth of my youngest brother and the birth of my brother, Michael, who was three when my dad passed away, um, you know, just seeing the videos of, of my brother, Nick and I going to, you know, coddle our brothers and like, you know, what my dad would say, you know, just like to love your brothers and stuff like that. And, and, and so he was just a good person, you know, and everyone loved him. And, you know, if they didn't like him, it was their loss, you know? What's your fondest memory of your dad? Wow. Um, it's a tricky one. I, you know, I, I have memories of, of driving around my dad in his car. Um, I remember, you know, Christmas morning, you know, and, uh, birthdays and stuff. Um, but you know, it's funny. It's like with, with memories as a kid, especially when like you go through a traumatic event it almost sometimes feels as if those memories are possibly dreams. And I had this one memory of, of him, of being like in a kitchen with him and like running up to him. He always used to videotape us. And, uh, of course I see this video the other day. And so that was, that was nice because it was, it, it, rem- it made me remember and know that it wasn't a dream, you know? And, um, and I was very affectionate to my father and I really, really loved him. And I voiced that in these videos too. So I know that, you know, he knew that how much I loved him. You and your brother, Nick would take turns calling your father's cell phone, hoping he would answer on nine 11. Did you leave messages? We left, uh, probably hundreds you know, um, to the point that they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, we couldn't leave anymore. Um, 
and it didn't just happen on 9-11 either. It happened in the days after. And, you know, I think even the day that they came and told them, told us that they found them, I think that I, you know, I probably still was calling. Um, but that was a week later. And so for at least that week we were calling and, um, and my mom actually listened to some of those voicemails. I, I never did. Um, we don't have a copy of them, but we, uh, got in contact to get his voicemail so that we could see if maybe he called his cell phone to leave a voicemail to say where he was, if he, if he got lost. Um, and my mom said it was, that was one of the hardest things she ever had to hear was us calling him. And we called him all the time, you know, and my mom actually switched her cell phone number, but she got a cell phone and, and, and picked up his number. So mm. his memory's still alive with that. So it was a week after the attacks that you learned that your father did not make it out alive. Yeah. What was that like for your family, for your mom, who had these young children? I was playing with my brother in the foyer, um, and we were home from school for a little bit after 9-11, and um, my grandmother was staying with us, and my grandfather, my grandfather, I'm pretty sure, was there too, but I vividly remember my grandmother being there, and, uh, and so we... Um, you know, went upstairs, my grandma told us to go upstairs and they came to the house and just seeing my mother's reaction, you know, we were watching, you know, we were, we were told to go upstairs and hide or whatever, go play, but we were hiding at the top of the steps watching. Um, and I'm not sure if my brother remembers that, but, um, and seeing my mother's reaction and then quickly, you know, she called us down and, and told us and, and I immediately broke down, you know, crying and stuff. And, um, I mean, it was one of the hardest things I think my mom has ever had to do, you know, to tell us that, um, and, you know, as my brother, my youngest brothers got older, you know, you, they'd start asking questions too, you know, cause they weren't really processing it the way we were, I was, especially, you know, even with Nick and I, like a two year difference doesn't seem like much, but you know, I hold, I hold on to certain things and memories and, and he may hold on to others, you know, like, and so, um, so there was definitely a lot more questioning that went on in, in those later years too. How soon after did you go back to school to try to return to some level of normalcy? And what was that like for you? This is a conflicting one. We, we can never really pinpoint it, but I, I'm pretty sure that I went um, two weeks back, two weeks later. Uh, it, was a, it was a minimum of some time because like, it had to have been at least a couple of weeks because uh, some of our classmates wrote up, made these big books for us of, you know, thinking of you and stuff like that and, and dropped it off at the house. And, and there was people like our house was, you know, it's so funny. I grew up as such a family oriented person and I loved my family coming over and like never wanting them to leave with events. But it felt like that all the time. It was like that all the time, but it didn't feel the same. You know, it was like people were coming in, they were dropping off food. Like we didn't have enough room anymore for the food. Um, and there was people always, always in and out, constantly stopping, dropping by. Um, and so I think that when I got back to school, I, I, not that I think I know that it, it, it wasn't, it didn't seem like I was normal. All right. Like I, that's when I really started to feel different because I look I look back and I remember just moments of, you know, there was a, a mass, we had this memorial mass and, and, um, and one of the churches that was in our town or is in our town, there's like a higher up pew and they would, and you know, people would sit up there and, and we were down below close to the front and the people were like looking down at us, you know, and I just felt like always pitied. And, um, and I think those emotions for me carried into late into middle school and into high school and stuff. So fair to say there is a sort of stigma 
attached to being a 9-11 child, if you will? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's, and there's been so many different things, you know, people think that, uh, you know, there's been stories about people who, you know, got money and spent and like, you know, lavishly spent money, you know, it was, there, there were so many different stories that came out that, um, yeah, there was, I think naturally there was a stigmatization that came with it. What have you learned about your father's final moments? I learned that he made, to my knowledge, three phone calls, two of which to my mom, that he actually spoke to her. They, they kept calling each other back and forth. And uh, that was two minutes after the plane hit. Um, he also spoke to his brother, who called him and finally got through to him. And to our knowledge, that is the last person my father spoke to. Um, and he just said goodbye. And he said he loved my mother. He loved my, bro- my uncle, his brother. Um, and he said goodbye. And so I think that he knew, you know, it was very quickly after the planes hit. And I, I, I think that he knew. Um, and that's what's kind of scary. And, and almost in a way, it's, it's, it's uh, comforting, too, because it's, you know, two minutes after the plane hit and he made those calls and said goodbye. I think that, you know, it, it got dire in there pretty quickly. Um, and so, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. And um, what I found out in the years to come was that uh, that was quick. He didn't suffer. He didn't suffer from asphyxiation or anything like that. And um, that he was in the staircase, most likely, when it collapsed. And uh, and he was alive one second and gone the next. That's, that's what the, the medical examiner told my mom. And it was really hard for them because, you know, Everyone was, who they found was labeled as blunt force trauma or multiple blunt force trauma, but we were able to make a call and, and, and find out some de- more details and stuff. Um, and so in the years to come, when I finally figured that out, it was, it was definitely comforting to know, at least try to picture how he spent his last moments. How much did you obsess over the events of 9-11, your father's last moments over the years? It's a big part of my story. The first day... 9-11 itself, I remember coming home from school and it had to have been maybe, it wasn't, it could not have been like maybe the main, one of the main channels, you know, like Fox or something, but it was a channel that showed a, pic, a video of someone jumping. And I don't remember ever seeing it again on TV, on live TV. Um, and that resonated with me. And in the next couple of years, I started asking a lot of questions and I started looking at these books that my mom had purchased that had timeline pictures of the day, right? So it would show like the planes and then the smoke and all that stuff into the collapse and everything. But in the middle of that, there was a a picture of someone jumping. And when I saw that, that same image that I saw on television when I was nine just came back. And I, for whatever reason, just started looking at these videos and these pictures started off as pictures. And I would look at the upper floors of the North tower. And, and, and see all these people hanging out of the, of, the, of the tower. And just thinking to myself, like, wow, like these people are literally standing like thousands of feet in the air, hanging out of these windows. Like I had been up there, like I knew, you look down and I'm scared of heights. And it's like, how much, and they had probably, you know, they were forced to do that, obviously, right? So it, it really fascinated me in a, in a saddening way, not like a, out of like, oh my God, this is cool. Like it was, it was heartbreaking. And so I started looking at these videos and these pictures and, and trying to piece together my dad's moments. And I, saw, I thought to myself, well, maybe he jumped. And that's where my questions started to go. Who did you talk to about your feelings? Who were your go-to people? Or did you keep it to yourself? 
I did not keep it to myself. I talked to, um, I talked to my mother. I talked to my uncle Tony, my dad's brother, my mom's brother. And I talked to uncles on my mom's side of the family and dad's side of the family. You know, one of my uncles on my dad's side of the family was there that day. And I talked to him. Um, and I had an uncle through marriage, um, who on my mom's side that, that, that took advantage of that. Your uncle Phil. Yeah. It's a pseudonym. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, and uh, you know, so that that's where it started. Was you know, there had been attempts from him before, attempts that I kind of quickly brushed off and didn't really think much of it. And um, and then I started asking him the questions that I asked everyone else, and he was very very receptive to that. You know, had no problem answering any questions that I had to ask. Um, you know, initially I asked him, do you think he jumped? And he didn't say no, but he didn't say yes either. Right. And he was like, you know, it was just really bad in there. And so like, there was no, it was very vague. And so I continued searching and searching and searching. And then eventually I got to a point where I asked him again and he told me, yeah, he jumped. And that was the first time it led right into the sexual abuse. Unbelievable. He just took advantage of your vulnerability. No, yeah. He just completely stripped me of any remaining chance of innocence as a kid. And, um, you know, uh, sent me down even a, a darker and deeper hole. How long did that abuse go on? Went on for about uh, a year and a half on and off. Um, it, uh, you know, there'd be breaks and stuff and there'd be times where, you know, there'd be people around and stuff that were like that, I, you know, I was petrified, but uh, I didn't know from what I was told, I didn't want to be labeled the way I thought I would be labeled if I came forward about it. So I didn't. And it was just easier for me to keep it to myself and suck it up. And once it stopped, I, you know, once I was able to get old enough where I pulled myself away, um, I, you know, what it came down to was uh, now I can't act. I can't pretend like I can't act like this happened. I have to pretend like it didn't. So that's what I did. And I would put on a smile, talk to him at parties, you know, and it was just, we had a relationship too. And I think that, you know, before it started. And, and I think that um, for me, it was, I was searching for a father figure. I was searching for someone to talk to. Um, and I, and I wanted to feel a father figure and, and a father figure's attention and, and affection. That's what, that's what I wanted. And so, you know, I look back now and, and, and it crushes me, obviously, you know, it's like, if I wish I could go back and tell this innocent kid, you know, what would happen, but you know, um, can't do anything about it now. But that's, I, I think that's, you know, it, it really, obviously it's, it's, it messed with my head a lot. He was charged. He was convicted. He was sent to prison for how long? <laughs> he was sent to prison for seven years. Um, and I don't know if you want to cut this out, but, uh, he actually just got released like an hour and a half ago. Wow. So he, uh, he ended up serving just under four years. Um, and I knew he wouldn't serve the full sentence, but he had his parole hearings and stuff and they got declined. And then the last one that we went to, they said, look, if he doesn't, if he gets declined, he's going to get out the next time there's a date. And then he got declined and then the date came and that date was supposed to be in November and it's gotten, it obviously changed to, to now. So how are you feeling? Um, I'm a, I don't know. I'm, I, strangely enough, I'm in a sense of peace right now. I, I don't feel fear. Um, I don't really feel too much animosity either. I do to a degree, but, um, 
I'm also really trying not to harp on it. And like, you know, I have 9-11s coming up. So I'll be honest, like that's been like really coming up for me recently and thinking about that. It's like every single time you get to the end of August and get to right to September, it's the countdown. And, and for me, I'm trying to count down to the book, but this is the way it's always been. You know, it's, you just know, okay, this time it's coming back. And then it'll go through the media again and then it'll be swept under the rug and then, but this is something that I deal with every day. You know, I think about this every day. So um, for me, it's different, you know? You've battled drug and alcohol abuse. How old were you when you started down a path of drinking and drugging? Started drinking when I was like 14. Into high school, it was just drinking on the, on the weekends with my friends, smoking pot recreationally, nothing crazy. Um, I had my wisdom teeth pulled out in high school, got painkillers, nothing. Um, when I got to college, I started dabbling with pills, you know, started off with like Adderall and which I was prescribed, um, eventually prescribed. Um, and then, you know, Oxy painkillers and Xanax and, and, um, and that went on for roughly 10 years, uh, just under, just under 10 years. And, um, and I got sober a little over five years ago. At what point would you say you hit rock bottom? You know, it's, I faced a lot in that last year, right? I, I had legal trouble. Um, and that legal trouble didn't stop me either. You know, it was, it was serious legal trouble too. And it did not stop me from continuing. I wanted to continue. I had no, I, I knew if I, if I had stopped right then and there, um, it would help my chances with, with, with what I was facing legally, but I didn't care. Um, so about eight months later, um, I didn't even have too much of a physical rock bottom. You know, I wasn't homeless. Like uh, you can't equate everyone's story to being homeless or whatever. That That's not fair to do because, you know, for me, I, I dealt with mental torment on a daily basis and I wanted, I wanted to end my life. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, every single day I, I figured out how I was going to get more money. So, uh, Aside from the fact that, you know, I had a job in New York City and, and wore a suit, I, I just was like every other addict, you know, maybe functioning to a degree, but not really functioning. And so I had actually met with my probation officer, um, failed the drug test, which I had months of advance notice of. And when I got home, I had this dilemma in my mind. I was like, okay, I was told if I fail the next one, I was going to go to jail. And that didn't scare me. But... I said to myself, I am just so sick and tired of this living and living this way and just like waking up every day and having to do this stuff. And so I ended up having a spiritual experience from my father that prompted me to finally call up a detox on my own and check myself in. And, and then I went to rehab and so a sober, a sober facility and then a sober living facility, excuse me. And then here I am. An experience that involved a fly. Can you share that story with us? Yeah. So when my father passed away in the couple of days after 9-11, my mother was, was told, look out for the signs. So like literally, I think it, it was like maybe a day or two later. Um, and this fly lands in her room on her nightstand. And she took that as her sign that my father was, was safely in heaven. That fly ended up staying in our house for like six months after 9-11. Um, and then it ended up just being around all the time in the years to follow. And that was our sign. That was, that was our, my dad. And so I had walked outside that day. It was July 22nd, 2015. And, um, 
I walked outside and I looked up in the sky and I was like just hit with emotion because it just brought me right back to 9-11. It was, it was the same type of morning or it was at that point it was afternoon, but it was the same type of feeling. It was just crystal clear blue sky day, like a sapphire blue in the sky, not a cloud to be seen and just a crisp feeling. Um, and I just started, I broke down and I said, dad, please give me a sign. I need help. And this fly lands on the railing. And then that was, I sat there looking at the fly because I was under the influence. So I was looking, thinking maybe I smoked a little too much or drank because I was drinking too. And I was like, wow, maybe, I, maybe I'm a little messed up. And then I pulled out my phone and I recorded it and it just kept moving around in a circle and it would, it would stop and look at me and move around. And, and I was like, all right, that's it. So I called up a detox and then I, I, I wrote my mother a long letter uh, on a text and I said, listen, I'm going to treatment. Um, and she called me up and she said, I'm proud of you. And, and then I was off. I was off to, I was off to getting better. Is there something that you and your family do every 9-11? It's been 19 years this year. How do you typically mark that day? Typically, we go to a place in, in Sterling, New Jersey called the St. Joseph Shrine. It is where my mother and pretty much all my friends' mothers went for a support group. So at the shrine, they have, it's like, uh, it surrounds these two big beams from the, North, from the Trade Center. And so it, it surrounds that. And in the middle, it has, it has a, a bell tower. And so we go there and there's a mass and on the corners of, on either side adjacent to where the bell tower is with the two beams, there are chairs and, and, and it moves up in sort of like an oval. And so they have like plaques of all the names and stuff like that. So everyone surrounds the bell tower and there's a mass that's outside in, in the morning and, and, the, and the bell tower goes off when the planes hit. So usually, you know, you're not looking at your phone during the mass, so you're caught off guard a little bit and, and it's powerful. And when the bell goes off, there's a moment of silence. Um, and then after the mass or during the mass, but after the, the early parts of the mass, we, we go up and we read, we say um, our family members' names, and then we go ring the bell tower and then light a candle that gets donated to people who need it, people who are suffering. Or you take one for yourself and give it to someone who you know is suffering. And so that's what we typically do. Unfortunately, this year it's canceled, um, you know, because of coronavirus. But, uh, you know, hopefully next year we'll, we'll be back there. Is there something of your dad's that you keep close to you that means the most? I have two things. I wear, so I was gifted one of his watches when I graduated from college. He was wearing one that day, which we never got back. But I had his other one. I have his other one. And I was gifted that. And, um, and I hold that very true. I'm wearing it right now. I, mean, I hold that very true to me. You know, I, uh, and it's, it's powerful. You know, like I, I've been wearing this watch now for six years, but it's eerie when, you, when I think about it too. It's like, you know, he wore this watch. Like this was on his wrist, you know. Um, I also have, um, I have his money clip too, which I have stored away and um, it's got his initials engraved, engraved on it. And so, yeah, those, those, are, those are two things that I keep true to me. What inspired you to write the book, Matt? Well, I journaled a lot as a kid and I got a lot of release from that and a lot of satisfaction and getting, putting my pen to, pa to paper and just getting things off my chest. And I've been very vocal and emotional and, and um, pretty much an open book, you know, throughout my whole life. But 
I started speaking at schools when I was in New Hampshire and I was telling my story and, and, and each time as I started to tell my story, I'd get a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more details would come out and, and people started telling me, look, you should, maybe you should write a book. Like, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, that time I was like 24 years old. It's like, what do I have to offer with a book? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm young. And so I started writing, I finally put that to the side and I started writing and I was like, you know, it felt good to get those things off my chest and those events off my chest. And, um, I've definitely had a cathartic experience from it and a therapeutic experience and a release. And so I'm hoping that some of the raw stuff that I put out on paper, on paper, you know, and, and the honesty, um, and the true vulnerability that I put will help inspire people to overcome their own demons and, and adversities. The book is Sway. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Matt Bocci's memoir is titled Sway. It's published by Post Hill Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Matty Bristow. And thank you so much for listening.